Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, Rob Nixon details the personal, political, and ecological crises that inspired his book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. Rob is the Curry C. and Thomas A. Barron Family Professor in the Humanities and the Environment at Princeton University. This interview was recorded in late February of this year, only days before a new crisis erupted in Europe. So what I'm going to read is a section from the chapter on Ken Sarawiwa's campaign against the destruction of his people and their environment in Nigeria in the late 80s and 90s um, that led to his arrest and his execution um, by the Nigerian regime, which was trying at the time to stamp out his ideas. Ken Sarawiwa's campaign against the destruction of Nigerian micro-minorities through the devastation of their environment has proven to be a harbinger of a much broader discontent. Sarawiwa seemed to intuit as much at his tribunal before his execution as he looked back on his life with an otherworldly eye. I will tell you this, he said, I may be dead, but my ideas will surely not die. The gospel cadences to Sarawiwa's prophecy are consistent with the passion play that the Nigerian junta inadvertently helped create. Sarawiwa was no messiah. He was a courageous man who stood outside the conventions of corruption, but who could also be testy, inflexible, self-aggrandizing, and subject to overweening ambition. The junta took this very mortal and internationally obscure activist, gave him a stage trial, and turned him through execution into a martyr. They thus amplified his cause and, as happens with martyrs, simplified that cause in his favour. Living people grow old, but martyrs grow younger, the Palestinian poet Murad Barghouti once observed. Sarawiwa instantly became larger and longer than life. The word flashed around Lagos and Port Harcourt that he had refused to die, that it had taken five hangings to kill him. As a final precaution against his posthumous revenge, the regime stationed armed guards at the cemetery. They had orders to shoot anyone seen approaching the grave to pay homage or claim relics. Sarawiba understood far better than his adversaries that you can't crucify ideas, that there are some things which cannot be resolved by a show of force. President Sonny Abacha and his sidekicks were exasperated by the unruliness of language, by its refusal to submit to military control. In countries like Nigeria, where official brutality and paranoia feed off each other, unofficial writing begins to assume the status of latent insult. Thus journalists, writers and intellectuals are singled out for harassment, detention, torture and execution, often as much as for what they represent as for anything specific they say. By 
by slow violence, I mean um, harms that are incremental and attritional, that are not cinematic or theatrical. So to ground that in an example, in the second half of the 20th century, most people would have regarded the greatest existential threat as uh, nuclear warfare. And we had this image of the illuminated mushroom cloud that is a very, very powerful and condensed and cinematic uh, image of threat. In the 21st century, if we consider climate breakdown the greatest existential threat, we struggle to condense it into a compact image of threat. Instead, it's advancing processes, rising, incrementally rising sea levels, shifts in uh, patterns of drought and, and excess uh, rainfall. Um, and these are cumulative. Uh, so so there's, there's, what I was trying to do was to broaden our thinking of violence, to include um, the incremental forms of violence. Uh, and so, I mean, even if we look at the contemporary situation now, um, with, 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 with COVID deaths, as opposed to, say, uh, the catastrophe of 9-11, where you had burning uh, buildings, uh, images of people falling out of buildings. Part of the trauma, I think, for a lot of people who lived through that was they'd already seen it uh, in the movie house. You know, it was a familiar image, whereas something like uh, the spread of a pathogen uh, and and climate change, those are harder to turn into narrative emergencies. The, the Sarah Weaver case, uh, the execution of Sarah Weaver and the Agoni 8 in 1995, was really the beginning of the book for me, uh, without me knowing that it was going to be a book. Uh, it was the first time that I had seen an African writer express the assaults against his people in terms of ecocide. Um, and so that was really a turning point for me. I mean, I was trained as an Africanist and a post-colonialist. And the context for environmentalism in Africa, particularly in East Africa and Southern Africa, was overwhelmingly a one driven by international tourism and international wildlife NGOs. And the common and justifiable complaint was that these foreigners liked animals more than people and they were prepared to displace uh, indigenous people off their lands in order to create uh, wildlife uh, national parks and wildlife refuges. And so in the context of Africa, the terms that we're familiar were idea of conservation refugees and, and as I say, forced removal of people in order to make way for charismatic megafauna. So this was a totally different type of environmentalism focused on the Niger Delta, the, the shell um, polluting, uh, shell and, and, and the uh, uh, Nigerian uh, national oil company together, polluting the waters of the Delta and making them uninhabitable uh, for, the, for the people who, who depended on the fish and the, and the mangrove, uh, the fecundity of the mangrove uh, swamps. Uh, so that was really, for me, uh, a, a turning point in my thinking and also, without knowing it, a launching pad for the book.
Growing up in South Africa, I had a very outdoor childhood. I wanted initially to become an ornithologist. Um, and then when I went to university, I majored in African languages. And it was the context of the 1970s. Um, I grew up in the area of the country where Steve Biko was murdered. Um, you know, I went to his funeral and I made, I was very involved with the Anglican Church back then. And I made um, a lot of African friends at uh, the Black Only University through the church and through my fluency in uh, Kosa and Zulu. Uh, and that totally transformed my life. It, ga it gave me uh, an entry point into the emotional textures of what it was like to live in a white supremacist society. Um, and I, I sort of abandoned the natural world. I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of the freedoms and pleasures that I had experienced as a boy. Um, and so when I then left as a conscientious objector in 1980, and, and I moved to the US, um, environmentalism was, was not part of my framework whatsoever. And I became a student and then a scholar of post-colonial studies. Um, and I was as deeply um, skeptical of environmentalism as I think most post-colonialists would have been, that it was somehow a, um, it was the province of well-off, white, middle-class, kind of hippy-dippy tree-huggers um, who, again, were perhaps more interested in the natural world than in uh, justice for human communities. So I think those were, you know, and, and so I was working on my dissertation under Edward Said, and it was on V.S. Naipaul, um, and then it subsequently became my first book. Um, and so I, I, I really was interested in third world social movements, um, before I was interested in uh, and bringing environmental justice issues to bear on, on those movements. You know, I'd been involved in the anti-apartheid movement both in South Africa and then um, in exile in, in the, in the mid-80s as a graduate student at the height of the uh, divestment and, and, and boycott movement in the US. Um, and... Uh, during that period, I think, you know, it was very easy to focus on the blunt brutality of the apartheid regime. But at the same time, I was very aware of what, what, what I might now call slow violence, like um, the, the policy of educational deprivation that, that black people should be educated for manual labor. So and things like that. So in the in the American context today, you know, in 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 black communities like Milwaukee and Wisconsin, where I lived for a long time, yeah, um, people talk about the preschool to prison pipeline. This idea that the the discriminatory um, denial of access to the the fundaments of education um, becomes a predictor particularly for, for black men in, in a state like Wisconsin, of, of, the, of the narrowing of their options. Um, so it's, it's something that um, is sort of disguised over time. 
Um, and so I, I began to think a little bit more about the relationship in the South African context of um, spectacular sort of um, armed violence versus the tremendous weight of structural inequalities. And so, so that type of thinking, I think, was already there before this uh, Sarawiwa was, was arrested and detained. But when he, when he was... Um, when he was detained in ninety five, I linked up with a with an activist in Nigeria called Claude Ake, who was subsequently mysteriously uh, killed in an, an airplane crash, and became part of this international movement to free Sarawiwa. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and a piece in London Review of Books. But in in the Times, particularly, I was saying, you know. America is the major market for this uh, oil from Nigeria. We're, we're implicated in this. If he gets executed, this is, this is you know, on our, on our watch, as it were. Um, and, and I think in that context, I began to recognize that there was this public health link uh, to environmentalism that was the vital missing element in uh, creating some kind of bridge work between post-colonial understandings or, or decolonial understandings um, of injustice and environmental understandings of uh, a compromised or despoiled environment um, that uh, wrecked the life chances of those living there. I should fess up and say that this was a book that didn't intend to become a book. Um, and I, I, I don't think I'm a particularly well-organized writer. But there were just these moments in my career that got me thinking about, uh, uh, about issues that I ultimately came to recognize as connected. And I tried to generate that connective tissue in the introduction, which was the last thing I wrote. Um, and so this, the terms of violence itself came fairly late in the process. Um, and I should add that the book I'd written before this, uh, the previous book, um, was, was called Dreambirds, and that was a memoir. Uh, and I was pulled more and more into public writing. And in the 90s, I thought of abandoning academia altogether. Um, and so after I finished Dreambirds, which was a sort of a memoir, I was searching around for another trade book to write and uh, trying this and that, and I didn't really find the subject I wanted. And then the Iraq war broke out or, or the American invasion happened and, and uh, Afghanistan as well. And I decided to write a book on depleted uranium, uh, which was, uh, this was the, I, I realized that the Iraq war had amped up 
this uh, incredibly dangerous substance that was now um, permeating bodies and landscapes. And I went back to the first Gulf War in 1990 and realized that, you know, people had, had depicted it as a very short and successful war, but this was the war in which depleted uranium uh, and cluster bombs started to be used. And so here was a substance that was radio, posed a radioactive and chemical threat, and um, the um, depleted uranium had a radioactive half-life of 4.5 billion years. So that was a kind of... Um, that, that just blew my mind. And I started traveling around the US interviewing veterans whose bodies were falling apart. Um, some of them had been in what were called Abrams tanks, which had depleted uranium armor. Some of them had just been in the area where these pyrophoric, these, these fire-loving, uh, this fire-loving substance uh, uh, was ignited and, and produces to toxic clouds. And the more I interviewed these people, I mean, my, my plan was to interview them and then go to Iraq and with, with a Geiger counter and, and do some research on the long-term exposures in the landscape. But the more I interviewed these, these veterans, the more absolutely despairing I became. And I thought there, there, isn't, there isn't an activist movement around this. The, the research isn't happening. No one's invest, invested in investigating this properly. And I just couldn't imagine staying with this absolutely devastating material for the length of time it would take to research and write a book. So, so those filing cabinets of interviews and that eventually became half a chapter in this book. But it did, again, in, pick up a thread of my thinking from way back uh, with Sarawiwa, which is the, the toxic permeation of a landscape and the effect that has on the most vulnerable communities, on their health, their subsistence capacity, and so forth. Structuring the book was a bit of a headache, and I, I still feel it's a bit random. You know, it's a very, very wide-ranging book in its geographical interests, but, uh, you know, I, I tried to build some continuity while also recognizing that some parts may be a bit angular to the overall shape. Um, and I certainly, as I say, I wasn't thinking about it as a book probably until about 2008. And then I suddenly, I was writing about Wangari Mathai and she had fairly recently won the Nobel Prize for Peace Prize, uh, looking at the impact of deforestation and soil erosion on the health of rural women in Kenya and started this tree planting movement. And so... There again, I was thinking more positively about incremental activism, slow activism, as a counter to the slow violence of um, topsoil loss uh, and deforestation and so forth. So Wangari Mathai then became a prominent figure in my thinking. And I began, this probably around 2008, to have the inklings that I could put these essays together in a book and somehow find a connecting thread. And so I, I was very concerned in, in, in all of these instances of, of thinking through um, the way in which time camouflages violence, 
Um, and sometimes this can be deliberate. Um, it, 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 it can be uh, structurally conceived in advance that these people are less consequential and therefore uh, we can trash their landscapes and their health. And other times it, it can be inadvertent. I mean, uh, another figure who is very, very influential on in me was Rachel Carson. And Carson, you know, was, was, was quite clear that after World War II, we had this huge proliferation of the chemical arsenal available to us, particularly in the US and then Europe and elsewhere. And we, we had no research at all for most of these products like DDT and Dildren um, on what the long-term health impacts are. And we didn't have research particularly in what the compound effects were. In other words, when these chemicals are interacting in the environment, we know next to nothing about the long-term health effects. Uh, so, so that was another, another moment thinking about Carson when the pattern began to cohere and I began to see the, these continuities and the pervasiveness of slow violence across different periods and different geographies. You know, I think part of what I was doing was trying to expose a certain way in which any given landscape has multiple forms of environmental time moving through it and imposed on it. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the introduction was the, what was then a fairly new term, the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene. This idea that humans are geologic scale actors, that uh, readers of the uh, geological and, and, and uh, archaeological record thousands of years from now, we'll be able to see the traces of our carbon intensive lifestyle on the biology, geology and chemistry of the earth. So that's, that's asking us to think in these enormous time frames. At the same time, our attention spans are being diced and spliced by more and more uh, screen time. And so I think we're, we're, we're constantly struggling to, you know, deal with the, the, the four-year electoral cycle or five-year electoral cycle, the 24-hour news cycle, the, the forms of slow violence in the environment, the, the, the attritional pace of climate breakdown, um, flooding, droughts, all of uh, interrupted monsoon seasons, all of these environmentally impactful uh, activities or, or, or phenomena are operating on different time frames, you know. And, and so that was part of what I wanted to do was to say there are threats and some of these threats are avoidable and we need to embrace the precautionary principle that it's a terrible thing to unleash these unknown products on the most vulnerable communities and subject them in many cases to what I would see as intergenerational violence.
you know, there are not a lot of encouraging things in the contemporary world, but one of the things that has shifted in the 25 years since I've been writing about and teaching environmental justice is that environmental justice has moved from the margins of environmentalism to the centre. And I find that very, very encouraging, that the question of the burden of environmental harms, the discriminatory burdens of environmental harms, discriminatory access to the commons, to breathable air, uh, drinkable water, green areas to, to decompress, and the, the spectrum of voices that get to speak for the environment. All of those three things have changed radically in a positive direction. Craft is brought to you by Wasafiri Magazine and Queen Mary University of London, with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music and sound design is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Al-Saraji. Tom Wilson does our editing. Interviews and the introduction are by me, Malachi McIntosh. And Afsana Nishat does everything else. See you next month.